0: There are countries in the world that don't have the biggest armies or the largest populations, but they make up for those deficiencies in other ways. Oftentimes, the smallest nations are the ones with the most patriotic citizens. After all, they are few and unique. But perhaps none are fewer or more unique than the residents of one particular place, the Republic of Meloja. It was first established on May 26th of 1977 as the Grand Republic of Wolstein, under the rule of King James I and its Prime Minister a young man named Kevin Bao. Voldstein was a fairly sleepy nation, and its king wasn't too interested in power or money. After some time, though, the king ceased being part of Voldstein's progress, and Prime Minister Bao took over its development. In 1980, he renamed it the Kingdom of Edelstein, before rechristening it yet again years later as the Kingdom of Zarya. In fact, Zarya changed names almost as many times as it changed locations. It established a presence in Europe around this time, then moved again in 1992. Finally, in the mid to late 1990s, the kingdom found a permanent home when Prime Minister Bao purchased the necessary land and planted his flag. He then renounced the kingdom and installed a provisional communist government in its place. This was abandoned months later, however, once Zarya joined a NATO-like organization called the United Provinces of Utopia. Beginning in 1999, the United Provinces disbanded, leaving Bao's country without an official government. It also meant that he was no longer in charge of a real nation. So on February 21st, he declared the People's Democratic Republic of Milosia as officially open for business. That gave way to its final name eight months later, the Republic of Milosia. It was no longer the People's Democratic Republic. Bao was now the president, and his micronation was about to take some big strides. It hosted an International Olympic Games for other micronations in 2000. It also supported a new holiday called Norton Day, named for Joshua Abraham Norton, who briefly named himself the Emperor of the United States in 1859. In 2003, Malosia branched out and started a colony called Farfala, which it eventually surrendered two years later. Then, in 2006, it found itself embroiled in a war with the nearby micronation of Mustakistan. The battle lasted for weeks, with Mustakistan launching missiles into Meloja's territory. However, Bao's scrappy little country prevailed, mostly because the enemy's missiles were nothing more than model rockets, Mustakistan eventually went dormant several years later, having never recovered from their loss. But that wasn't the only war that Melodia had been involved in. Apparently, back in 1983, when Meloja was still called the Grand Republic of Waldstein, it had received a declaration of war from East Germany. Obviously, Germany was made whole again in 1990, so a notice of war with a non-existent country wouldn't make sense, right? Well, technically, East Germany still existed, thanks to a little place off Cuba's coast called Ernst Thälmann Island. It had been gifted by the Cuban government to East Germany during the 1970s, so this small parcel of land was all that remained of the original schism. And because Ernst Thälmann Island was still part of East Germany, at least symbolically, that meant the unification wasn't complete and the war between the two countries raged on. In fact, it continues to this day. Maloja resides within a desert climate of 11.3 acres of land. Its capital, Boston, was named for its founder and president, Kevin Bowe. The country boasts a population of 38, although four of those residents are dogs and another four are chickens. The two main languages spoken there are English Esperanto and Spanish. There is only one residence in the entire country. It's called Government House, and it's where the first family lives. The bank, post office, and telephone company can be found in Red Square, the town center. But good luck getting anyone to help you. The only people working there are mannequins. There's also one cemetery to the south. You won't find any former Melosians there, though. It's strictly a pet cemetery. As for recreation, the country has a national sport. It's called Melosian broomball and is a variation of an actual sport called broomball, which is popular in Canada. However, Maloja's version doesn't use a special stick to hit the ball. They play with a real broom. And every two years, the country holds an event known as the Misfit Regatta, in which participants don cardboard boxes and race each other across a small portion of desert. Some have called it a dry land boat race. Meloja's revenue comes from several different avenues. It sells coins, salt, stamps, and even war bonds to fund its never-ending fake battle with East Germany. But the primary source of income for Maloja is tourism dollars, which is why it was such a good idea for President Bao to establish his country in a place that would be easy for people to reach. He built it in Nevada, about an hour's drive south of Reno. And I guess that makes sense that the biggest little country in the world would sit so close to the biggest little city in the world. Everybody has that one person who knows them better than anyone else. It might be a parent or a childhood friend. In Theodore's case, it was his brother, David. The two siblings were born in Chicago, Illinois, Theodore in 1942, and the younger David in 1949. Their parents, Wanda and Theodore Sr., were working-class Polish-Americans, with their father employed as a sausage-maker who worked hard to take care of his family. The younger Theodore spent his formative years in Chicago, where he was well-liked by his friends and teachers. Three years after his brother's birth, however, the family moved to nearby Evergreen Park, a suburb located about 17 miles south of Chicago. It may have been only a half-hour drive from his old home, but Theodore found his new town, and junior high school, to be a whole other world. Still, he tried to make the best of it. He was tested by his new school and found to have an IQ of 167, high enough for him to skip the sixth grade. But that meant leaving the classmates of his own age behind. The older 7th graders bullied and picked on him. He had few friends and spent much of his time alone. He did better in high school, where he fell in with a more academically-minded group of friends. He joined several clubs, played trombone in the marching band, and proved himself to be something of a math genius. Once again, he skipped a grade and graduated high school at the age of 15. Think about it. He could go to college, but he couldn't legally drive a car yet. And not just any college. Theodore went to Harvard on a scholarship to pursue a bachelor's degree in mathematics. Meanwhile, his brother David was growing up back at home in Evergreen Park. David was also very bright, but not to the same degree as Theodore. Unfortunately, Theodore changed quite a bit while he was away at college. Or maybe college changed him. During one of his breaks at school, he came home to visit his family. David looked up to his older brother and tried to talk to him about some of his philosophies and beliefs, but something in Theodore had shifted. He was becoming a different person, someone angrier and more isolated. He eventually graduated from Harvard in 1962 and pursued both a master's and a doctoral degree in math from the University of Michigan. It looked like he had outgrown his awkward youth to become a respectable young academic with his whole life ahead of him. Theodore eventually moved and took a job as an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He wasn't cut out for education, though. His students didn't like his stiff teaching style, and Theodore himself felt out of place in front of a class full of students, so he resigned a year and a half later. His brother David, on the other hand, went to Columbia University in New York City, graduating in 1970. He spent his early college years writing for the school newspaper, but he didn't wind up pursuing a career in journalism after graduation. Instead, he worked at his father's factory as a supervisor for several years before following in his brother's footsteps and becoming a teacher. David seemed better suited to the profession than Theodore had been, who had moved out to Montana after leaving his teaching job and spending a few years back home with his folks. But the pair still wrote to each other regularly, at least until David decided to do the unthinkable. He fell in love. It was 1990, and David had met a young woman named Linda whom he wanted to marry, When he wrote to Theodore about his engagement, his brother was incensed. How could David abandon him like that? Theodore didn't know Linda at all. They hadn't even met. And yet he hated her and insisted that David cancel the wedding. But when David didn't stop his nuptials, the 48-year-old Theodore broke all contact, which was fine by him. He had to focus on his side project anyway. From the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, newspaper headlines began to crop up a few times a year someone would receive a package at a university, or a parcel would be stowed away on an airplane, which would inevitably explode, causing several injuries. In 1985, one of these packages resulted in a man's death, followed by several that caused deafness and lost fingers and limbs. In 1994 and 95, two more people were killed by exploding packages. 1995 was also the year the person behind the mail bombs published an anonymous 35,000-word essay explaining why he had sent them. It was published by the Washington Post on September 19th, with coordination from the FBI. They hoped that by putting it out there, a reader might notice something within the text to help recognize its author. David sure did. There was one phrase within the manifesto that stood out among all the others. It read, You can't eat your cake and have it too. He remembered how Theodore had always hated the real idiom, You can't have your cake and eat it too. This alternate version was something their mother had also said a number of times, and it had stuck out because of Theodore's insistence that it was more logically correct that way. Linda and David continued to read the manifesto and picked up on a number of other similarities between its wording and the letters that had arrived from David's brother over the years. So, they reached out to a lawyer who provided the FBI with several of Theodore's letters. It didn't take long for the Bureau to match them to the bomber's other writings. On April 3rd of 1996, FBI agents successfully arrested Theodore Ted Kaczynski at his remote cabin in Lincoln, Montana, although ever since, the world has known him as the Unabomber. No one knew Ted Kaczynski quite like his brother, but it was a relationship that would ultimately become his downfall. Ted had foolishly tried to remain anonymous while telling the whole world all about himself. In other words, he tried to have his cake, and eat it too. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works.